a listener production. This is From Zero, where I get the real stories behind some of Australia's best business successes. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author, and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost half a billion dollars annually without raising a dollar of outside capital. People ask me all the time, how do we start the business? And now I want to turn the tables. In this episode, I speak with Adir Schiffman from Catapult Sports. The worst part about it is like all of my sense of self-worth on a personal level was linked to being this amazing founder and CEO of this rapidly growing startup. And so I remember I went to the, I sat in this cafe at the beach at nine o'clock in the morning the following Monday. And I thought, um, what in the hell just happened? <laughs> and who am I? And what am I going to do? Adir Schiffman is a master of all trades. He's a registered medical doctor, a founder, an investor, the executive chairman of sports analytics giant Catapult Sports, and the chairman of Sleeping Duck, one of Australia's most valuable scale-ups. And if that's not enough, he's been named in the world's top 10 most innovative people in sports business. As a kid, Adir was the class clown. He found school pretty boring, not because he wasn't good at it, because he didn't like being told where to go and what to do every day. Adir finished school with good marks and studied medicine. He didn't necessarily want to be a doctor forever, but he wanted a career where he could help people. But even during medical school, business was always in the back of his mind. I really was quite stupid in the choice of going into medicine. I'm happy I did it, but I always loved business. That's what I loved. In fact, from the age of 13, I was doing various businesses. The first businesses I did well, with a guy who's subsequently gone on to become a QC now and um, you know, an, an old childhood friend. So that was my passion from very young. And for me, you know, it's just the challenge of being able to come up with an idea and then convincing people to actually pay you for it. There was something very exciting about that process. And what were so when, what was the business when you were 13? What, what was that business and, and how long did it last? That was the smartest and most opportunistic business I've ever done. So it was like it started off that the two of us got together and we thought, how can we make some money? Well, like our parents, they seem to love us a lot and um, their friends are kind of like suckers as well that seem to be very affectionate. So let's start a mag- let's start a little magazine for like our parents and friends social group, put all these interesting things in there and charge them a few dollars. Huh to buy it every month and then make them run personal ads in there for birthdays, yeah. et cetera. And so we did that and we made, you know, a few hundred dollars doing that, which, you know, it's it going to sound, make me sound very old, but that was like, you know, decent money in like the 80s when you're a kid. Totally. And then we decided to go and um, I think we found out about liquidation auctions and we were both tech nerds. And so we decided to go to these liquidation auctions and buy computer equipment and sell it through then the trading post, right, which is where yeah. every everything secondhand was sold. And so that was a great idea. And I'll tell you a funny story about that. So the first time we went and bought something, we bought this monitor and stupidly, you know the story of like if you don't know who is the sucker at the table and the sucker's you, right? So that yeah. was us, 13, 14 years old, went to the <sighs> auction, bought this monitor, didn't test it, brought it home broken, yeah? yeah. So what the hell did you do? We blew all of our cash on a broken monitor. <laughs> And so the thing about it is like that just presents a different kind of challenge, which is interesting in itself. 
And so we went down to the local cash converters and there was a guy working behind the counter who was probably in his early 20s and he took one look at the the two of us and immediately he thought, oh, I can see where who the sucker in this transaction is, it's <laughs> these two kids. And basically he bought this monitor off us for some dirt cheap price relative to the cost of a monitor, gave us yeah. the cash and by the time we were out of the store and long gone, I'm sure he turned it on and realized it was broken. But... Um, <laughs> You know, it's like be very careful who the sucker is in every transaction and don't be so confident that it's the other guy, right? So we actually made a small profit on that first transaction. It was a great experience. How much money were you making a year from, from this business? I reckon I was probably it – was, it was not huge, but it was a few thousand dollars a month probably that I was making out of it. Oh, wow. So they're not bad as a medical student. Adir ran his second-hand business all the way through medical school. He worked as a doctor for a few years – but realised being full-time in a hospital forced him back into the same rigid routines he hated as a kid, so his attention eventually turned back to business on a full-time basis. His next enterprise was called Global Reviews, and he started it with an old friend from high school. After we finished school, we met up, and I said to him, look, I really want to do a business that finds a way for me to spend my life like doing internet-related stuff. And I, I've got this idea where it seems that um, big companies are going to increasingly move online. You know, this was 1999, right? Like big companies were not online in 1999. And so I said to him, I've got this idea, which is we can basically do consulting, but we can create this model where um, we make a benchmark that shows how well companies are doing against their competitors in you know online customer experience. And I think that they might subscribe to it and buy it from us. And that was literally the basis of the business idea. And he was a lawyer, and I don't think he really liked being a lawyer. And so he said, yeah, let's give it a go, you know. So just explain. So you, you, you walk into to McDonald's. Or, yeah, uh, or Woolworths, let's yeah. say. Woolworths. And they had yeah. an online, I guess back then, a pretty sort of rustic website that you, I don't know if you could transact on. And would you rate the customer experience in terms of, customer service exactly or- exactly so you think about an, an you know think about an online retailer is an easy one to think about so literally we would go and we came up with um hundreds of criteria that we thought represented the online customer experience and we broke them down into different categories and we gave them a weighting based on some surveying we did of customers and then we would go through and literally quantitatively rate each one of these individual criteria and how the company did on those criteria and then do it against their competitors and then present it to them and say to them, you're strong here, you're weak here. We did it with banks. We did it with insurance companies, airlines, like a whole probably 20 different industries. And effectively, we would just go through and rate them all against a fixed set of criteria. I guess going back to almost what we were talking about before, so you're you're walking into – yeah. Woolworths and Qantas and some of these massive yeah. businesses. You're two two guys in your mid twenties who never. Yeah. You had business obviously in the past, but never worked. No, no, we're clueless, clueless, like to, <laughs> clueless in the extreme. You couldn't have been that clueless. Yeah. You'd be getting Qantas and, and Woolworths to sign up. How did you walk into these? How do you even know who to speak to? Well, you know, I think um, at heart, almost everyone who is successful in business is a salesperson or somebody associated with a business is a salesperson. Maybe it's not true for Google, right? Because Google, look, look, the customers come to you. But I think for almost every other business, there's someone in there that just loves selling and is very persuasive and passionate. And both of us were that. 
And so, like, we were just cold call. I know it's very uncool, but in Australia, you can just pick up the phone and you can cold call people. And the trick is, like, how do you get someone to want to talk to you? That's the ultimate question. And we came up with this idea where we said, if we go and just do these studies, these benchmarks, before we've got a customer, some of them, we weren't very expensive to do, right? We could do them ourselves. We would go and do them, and then we would send an email. We'd find the email address of, I don't know, the marketing manager of a health fund, and we would send them something, and we'd say, listen, you've scored this score on our benchmark. It's about third place. I want to have a chat with you about what we do and how other companies performed, how other funds performed. And worst case, you're going to get some interesting information that you can use from us. So it's going to be a good use of your time. Like, are you happy to have a conversation? And that is a great way to get access to a company. Like, offer them something valuable for free in return for a conversation. Mm-hmm. And like, our, our, like, we didn't know what we were doing. Years later, someone said to me, you guys were so smart the way you build companies up front for a year's worth of services and took the cash up front. We weren't smart. We were just clueless. Like we thought that's what that's we thought that's how it worked, you know. We didn't know that was a ridiculous business model that nobody would agree to. They all agreed because, you know, it's like the people that rob rob houses. They dress up as like um, removalists and they remove all of the stock from the house, right? Nobody asks them questions because they're wearing high vis and they've got a nice truck out the front. I think, like, I think we had a similar attitude, which is like the level of ignorance was completely overwhelming. The only thing we understood was the internet better than the customer. And so, yeah, we would just go in and um, talk passionately about it. And, you know, it sounds like such a ridiculous product offering today. I mean, by the way, that company is still selling a much more sophisticated version of that offering today. But back then, nobody was doing anything like that. So how much would you – you walk into Woolworths. Yeah. Here's the product. How much back then, this early early 2000s, I think, how much are you charging Woolworths for that upfront for a year for this product? So in 2000 – Woolworths wouldn't talk to us. Maybe someone like Shopfast or something. Do you remember them or whatever? Greengrocer.com.au, like yeah. the really early yeah. players, right? Who like had lots of cash and it was like it was, that timing was a bit unfortunate because it was just after the dot-com crash. But, you know, a lot of them were still cashed up. So I remember our first idea was to charge them $1,000 a month. That was the cost of the service. And then we realized – the reason we did it as this product is because we knew that nobody would ever pay us for our time, $1,000 a month. So yeah. we had to kind of productize it because then we thought we could charge much more money. And so then we realized that nobody needed this every month, so that was a bad model. But in the yeah. end, we ended up charging something like um, – Twelve or fifteen thousand dollars a year, and the reason we charged, relatively speaking, was quite a lot of money for something that mm. didn't cost a lot to do. Is there yep. was someone? At, do you remember the company Hitwise? You would remember Hitwise, of course. The original good tech exit, right? And so there was a woman there who I'm still very close with. Her, her name is um, Tessa Court. Tessa Court Heard, I think she is now, and um, and she was the head of marketing. And she told me this story, and I it, I really took it on board. And it was the story was, the Hitwise business started booming when they raised their pricing from something like $100 a month to $1,000 or $2,000 a month because it conveyed a completely different value proposition to the customer on the based on the pricing. And so I took that info on board and that is why we made sure that we did not price this cheaply. We priced it at a, at a rate that we thought would be a substantial amount of money and would convey that it was a highly valuable offering. And I'm guessing you didn't need to raise capital. We raised some seed. No, we raised – because we had to build the software to do this, okay. yeah, because we had to have a some nice presentation engine. And, yeah. you know, in retrospect, the first version was like glorified pivot tables, basically. Yeah. But um, we raised 
250k in the worst structured raising ever done by like a by founder. And I always say to founders now, just tell me how bad what you signed is, and I'll help you fix it. But don't be shy because I promise you, my first deal was worse than anything that you could have agreed to. And so the deal was, we, he gave us 250k. He gave us. He took a third of the company. He the money all went into the business, obviously. It was a loan, not equity. Yeah, and he and he got a third of the company, and he gave us his accountant to make sure we weren't wasting his money. But he charged us for his accountant, like that was the that was the deal. And actually, we paid him. We paid him back. Like so, yeah. and you know that was in two thousand, and um, and that's what we used to build the build the software. So, how big did the business in its so I guess in its peak in the in the early two thousand yeah. when you guys were really rolling, how how big did the yeah. business get? How many staff did you have, and what kind of revenue did you get to? So you know, the, like the 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 first thing I mean, I should say the first thing after two thousand, like we finally started getting some momentum, and then like it was nine eleven, right? And so yeah, that was almost the death of the business. It got very close. Like we were literally down to no money, and there was a twenty thousand dollar deal that we signed. Like I literally got someone to agree to a twenty thousand dollar deal. I was sick in bed and got her to agree over the phone and. You know that saved the business, and um, and then it kind of grew from there. The peak was like a minute to midnight for the financial crisis, right? And I think yeah. the revenue was, it was I don't know, north of ten mil somewhere, somewhere yeah. north. There were a couple of different businesses. Probably there were 80, 80 to one hundred staff in various forms working across. You know, we had that business, and we had another business called Help Me Choose, which at the time was the biggest lead generator for home loans in Australia, and the second yeah. biggest um, for for health insurance after I select. So we'd kind of diversified out and said, we know how to tell, how to, we're really, really good at helping large enterprises, especially when selling services online, like banks, health funds, et cetera. We're great at helping them improve the acquisition experience online. So why don't we go and build a version of that ourselves as a comparison business and use all of our expertise to optimize that. And we had some private equity investors that bought in, rolled one of their businesses in, and we effectively built that off the back of that expertise, and that became Help Me Choose. So, yeah, I mean, it was pretty exciting. 2008 was a great time, just right on the cusp of the financial crisis. That was when it was at its best. So that this is – we're sort of we're post-financial crisis now, and you guys have sold – Effectively, sold almost sold both businesses in a way. Um, well, we sold. sold well, I should correct you then. And say we so we got private equity involved before the financial crisis, which was great news for us and terribly unlucky for them. Although, they, to be honest, they had much bigger yeah. problems in the financial crisis than us. And um, yeah. and then the problem was Global Reviews is a business perfectly designed to perform terribly in a crisis. And so because you think about it, it's basically discretionary spend, marketing discretionary spend. Yeah. So that doesn't go well with frozen budgets in enterprise, which is what happens in a crisis, which is what's happening in COVID, right? Like enterprises freeze marketing and market research budgets. And so that was pretty bad. But um, Help Me Choose was pretty good in the crisis and um, especially the financial crisis with home loans, right? And so that was growing really, really strongly and I thought was on track to be a very substantial business. But the problem is that in a real crisis, when people's fear of losing more money overwhelms their fear of losing the money they've already invested, like I think all of life is just fear of one sort of an, or another, right? I think greed is just the fear of missing out, basically. Yeah. And so I, I think that 
these even a great business cannot raise capital in the depths of a crisis where people just want to hold on to whatever cash they still have. And that was the fate of Help Me Choose. Oh, we do not want to sell that business. Like, I didn't want to sell it. But um, it was a business that was not break-even. It was growing strongly. It was not far off break-even, but it needed money to keep growing and to keep operating. And I spoke to anyone and everyone, and everyone said, this is great and it's a great business and we can see it's going to be great and we're not giving you a cent. And so in the end, like I had no choice but to sell it. And so I just, you know, created an auction between Aussie home loans and mortgage choice. And I think there was another party and mortgage choice in the end, you know, that they got it. By now, Adir was in his early 30s. He'd already achieved more than what most people would in their entire lives. But without his businesses giving him a sense of identity and purpose, he felt lost. So you, you've sold... You sold Help Me Choose, and mm-hmm. you're looking for something to do. Is that, is that, is that what, what was sort of what, what was happening back then? Well, that's a generous way to describe it. So basically, I sold, I, I bought back Global Reviews and um, put in a CEO, and because I, you know, I didn't want to go back in and run it. Look, I'd largely transitioned out of the day-to-day running of that part of the business. And then Help Me Choose had been sold and it was like this deal where I would get paid gardening leave, but like we sold it, like the transaction was done at 5 p.m. on a Friday and at 5 p.m. and one second I was unemployed, but I was getting this gardening leave, which is a weird feeling, right? Like being a founder and being like unemployed, I had no job to go to, full stop. And um, like the gardening leave was like I was just getting paid to take calls with the CEO and have coffee with him. He's a great guy and, like, it was a good experience for me. And so I remember very clearly, you know, you have these, like, turning points in your life. And um, I was very forlorn. I mean, basically, we had destroyed this business in the fall. The financial crisis had, had created the environment where the business was – all the value was destroyed. And we hadn't sold down enough to have a ton of money. And – the worst part about it is like all of my sense of self-worth on a personal level was linked to being this amazing founder and CEO of this rapidly growing startup. And so pretty much I didn't really have anything left from a professional point of view. And so I remember I went to the, I sat in this cafe at the beach at nine o'clock in the morning, the following Monday. And I thought, um, what in the hell just happened? <laughs> and who am I? And what am I going to do? And I just had this epiphany where I thought, I'm going to write down a list of all of the things that I'm good at and all of the things that I'm terrible at. And I'm going to be really honest with myself. And like the terrible list, that was a long list, okay? (laughs) And like on that list was the CEO of a 100-person startup. Like that was on the list of terrible things. Operations, that was on the list of terrible things. And on the good list was basically very strategic, good at doing like mergers and acquisitions and transactions and um, good leadership, like terrible management, terrible management, but good leadership. And I yeah. thought, well, I better figure out a way so that I can use these few skills that I'm good at and find people that will value those more highly than they might legitimately be worth and that they can complement the other side. And for me, like that was the turning point where I realized I wasn't just going to be endlessly a CEO of startup after startup, but I had to take like a more strategic role in any startup I founded or got involved in to help grow. But it was a, it was a very painful personal realization to come to that. It wasn't easy. You've come to the realization that, that 
you don't want to run businesses anymore, but you want to guide them, I guess. And, and you come, and then somehow you stumble across a business called Catapult, uh, mm. which forms a pretty big part of the story uh, from here. So you, you, yeah, I think the business was, business was founded in a few years earlier by by uh, Sean and Igor, who had been yeah. at the Institute of Sports. And I'm, I'm guessing it was a pretty small business when they met you. Yeah, I think it was a couple of mil of revenue. It might have been three. I met them through. A, I'd met this guy on a plane and become very close friends with him. And he introduced me to his ex-brother-in-law, which was Sean, one of the founders. And we sat down and met. And I thought I was doing them this tremendous favour by um, catching up with them, giving them some time because, like, sports did not feel to me like a great industry with lots of money. And I think he thought he was doing me a favour by catching up (laughs) with me. And, yeah, it was a small business. You know, it, it, it had... I think it might have had seven or eight staff. Our office was in South Melbourne above a cafe. Hmm. Like it was not glamorous. And that was a much more glamorous office than where they'd been a year earlier. And, um, you know, we just kind of hit it off. And I think, um, you know, what I was very lucky to, to understand, much less explicitly than I now understand it, but I kind of got a feel for, for it, which was the nicest things to do are to, is to be in business with people who are honest and fun and smart and very passionate about product, but like probably in that order. And so yeah. like when every time I interact with Sean and Igor, even to this day, like um, I'm very excited to see their number on my phone when it comes yeah. through. And I think the worst business relationships are the ones where you kind of think, oh, God, do I have to take this call? And yeah. um, And I was just very lucky to find them and, you know, they had this little business and I said to them, I think I can come in and like be the chairman of this business, which is like, you know, of a seven or eight person business is the dumbest title ever, right? <laughs> but like, um, I think I can come in and I think, I think there's real potential with this business. Let me have a look. And I literally went in there for f- and worked for free, like a f- yeah. couple of days a week. I went in there for a month two or two so we could feel if this was going to work. And it was just this insane experience. The way I can describe it is, you know, the saying of like, you know, um, skeletons hidden in a closet. This was like the opposite. Every closet I opened, it's just like golden gems fell out of the (laughs) closet. It was like you, I just discovered that like all of the growth of this company, like it was largely driven previously by um, referral business from customers. Like they hadn't really had a structured sales team. And you know, they had patents over this technology and they had literally invented it and, you know, all of these incredible things. And so, you know, it was, it was good timing and the skill set that I described that I had just happened to perfectly fit in with the skill set that they had. Just taking a quick, a quick step back, so mm. what, what were they doing at the time and what, what, what did the technology do and, and who was using it? They were selling hardware to uh, elite teams, sports teams, mostly in Australia at that time. Like um, AFL teams. Exactly, exactly. AFL and yeah, mostly AFL, some some other sports. And predominantly, you know, what it was doing is not that dissimilar to a much more sophisticated version today that kind of does a similar thing, which is it basically collects a heap of data in real time and helps teams make decisions about how to improve the performance and the welfare of their players and effectively get the most out of them. And so today it's become, I mean, you talk, you mentioned AFL. You know, today there are people in the team that are dedicated to 
correctly deploying and using this technology. Every team uses Catapult. There's a league-wide deal with the AFL. It's used during games to assist decision-making. You know, this is, has become a fundamental part of elite sport, but it wasn't in 2010, 11. It wasn't. It was, it was new, and uh, there, was, there were probably already 100 customers, maybe 150 that had used it around the world, but it was a small business. So, uh, so in terms of that, that they were a pretty small business. Three million dollars not not insignificant, but they weren't a, a big business when you started. Yeah, yeah. What did you? And obviously, it's a much bigger business now. It became a much bigger business. What, what did you do when you came in to to change the trajectory of this business? So these are, you know, I emphasise these are very two very smart guys. Yeah. So it's not like I came in and suddenly there was no commercial acumen and you know the golden halo wrapped around the business when I got there. Like it wasn't yeah. like that. And, and keeping in mind, like I've got a fairly good kicking in the backside from the financial crisis in my own business, right? So like I'd learned some some important, very painful lessons on the way through. But, you know, I didn't have – at that point in time, I definitely didn't feel like a person with a great track record of success. And so I think the things that I saw reminded me of some things that I had done at Global Reviews, to be honest. And so one of those things – was I felt that I never quite had the right quality staff at Global Reviews and I didn't want to make that mistake again. And so I said one of the very early things is we brought in a really strong finance guy, a guy called Brett Coventry, who actually was the CFO all the way through the IPO. You know, it was a situation where it took me ages to convince the guys that we should employ a finance guy because, you know, it's a cost centre. And then they gave me a budget and I said, I'm going to go out and find someone. And I went and I said, here, it's a short list of two. And they met them and they said, we prefer Brett. And so I went to Brett and negotiated him to start working. And then I went back to the guys and I said, well, the good news is I signed up Brett. And they're like, okay, that's great. What's the bad news? I said, well, I, we're paying him twice the budget that you allocated to pay him because what you allocated, like I couldn't even get a junior person for that amount of money. So I just had to pay him twice as much, you know. And I think getting quality people or pushing to get quality people, it's always a struggle in business. The other thing for me was um, I always understood that subscription businesses were better than businesses where you sell a lot today and then tomorrow morning you wake up poor, which is most yeah. businesses that sell product. I convinced them, it took me six months, but I convinced them that we should go and shift our focus more to the software than to the hardware and host the software. Like this was before AWS, right? I'm not even sure the word cloud existed. And we hosted on our own servers. We called it Catapult Live. The servers were stored in a cupboard in the office of the cafe in South Melbourne. It's like all these international sporting teams as we were growing and they were all logging into the cupboard above the cafe. Yeah. And um, and I think that, you know, when we tried to raise capital in 2012, nobody would give us money because everyone said there's no business selling subscription software with a hardware component because nobody had done that before. Now it's quite common, right? But we were one of the first to do it. But I just instinctively knew and understood that if we were going to create a great business, then we had to transition the model away from selling individual items to getting customers for the long term on a subscription so we could constantly add value and be able to monetize that value. But, you know, it's a, that transition is a tough thing to do. I definitely didn't tell the guys at the time that the little bit of free cash that they were generating would get wiped out very quickly by this model as we grew and we would yeah. need to start raising capital. But, you know, I think that those were two of the things that, that I'd learnt at Global Reviews that, that made a pretty big difference at Catapult. 
In hindsight, transitioning from a hardware business to a software business was a stroke of genius. But at the time, it didn't seem that way. For a start, the business needed to raise a bunch of money from outside investors to survive the change. Adir and the team needed to hustle and raise $4 million from family and friends. This meant the business was able to not only survive, but also thrive. And then, just a few months later, Catapult Sports got their most high-profile investor yet. So you got that round away, December 2013, and then literally a few months later, opening up the paper and, and a business that most people hadn't heard of at the time in, in Catapult, just got invested by a guy called Mark Cuban, who's probably yeah. one, of the most, one of the most famous venture capitalists or angel investors in the world, broadcast.com, I think he made a couple of billion from, owns the Dallas Mavericks. Probably couldn't get a better investor in the business than, than Mark. Um, you've always had some pretty good success over the journey in, in, in mm. working with B2B sales, but how, how did you get Mark Cuban to invest in, in a little Australian uh, business that could barely raise a few months earlier? Well, you know, the problem, it all started because it was actually not about the money. Like, that's that's not the thing we mostly needed from him. The problem we were running into is that we were expanding into the US by 2012, and we kept running into And so one of the other things that I kind of led was um, a lot of the interpersonal relationships with leagues and partners and all of that type of thing because the founders were not really into that those particular things yeah and so i would go over to the u.s quite often and i kept running into the same problems which is people would say we just don't believe that an american company hasn't produced something that's better than whatever you've produced in australia like that was the american attitude and this this level of like overconfidence in in like their own tech industry and we just had to overcome this like inferiority issue that we had as an australian company And so it became obvious pretty quickly the way to do that was to get the most credible person in sport associated with this business and um, validating its credentials. And um, to be honest with you, I didn't quite understand how big Mark Cuban was at the time that I reached out to him. But um, because I think in Australia he wasn't as big. He's very well known now, but he wasn't as big five years ago. And the Mavs were one of the teams that we worked with, and obviously he owns them. And so I convinced the guy at our end who dealt with the Mavs to convince the guy at the Mavs to get me Cuban's email address. Yeah. And so I got his email address and I literally just wrote three paragraphs to him. This is what we do. You guys use it. You should get involved in our business. It's like amazing. And I, you know, I'm I'm like overly passionate and enthusiastic, you know, a bit of an excitable character. Right. And so, um, and like he wrote back within, I reckon five minutes. Wow. And he wrote back and said, sounds interesting. I'm sure your valuation's too expensive for me, but like happy to happy to hear more or something like that. Yeah. And you know, we just had some back and forths and in the end, like um he really liked what we were doing. We really liked him. He's actually a fantastic guy. Like, you know, he's got a he's got various media personas, but yeah. um his private persona is he's very polite and supportive and helpful and you know, quite blunt often, but you know, really a nice guy to deal with. Yeah, and so he got involved and started. we started writing articles, taking a few quotes from him and putting them in the articles about how great we were and what a good company yeah. we were. And that definitely had a transformational effect on our perception in the US. Like, it definitely worked. Yeah. So you, you've got Mark Cuban on board uh, and you, you managed to – in the 2013, you scraped through and raised a few million dollars. Uh, yeah. Having and then within a year, you, you yeah. RPO'd on the stock exchange. Yeah. How did, how, how did that happen? 
you know, we needed more money, and it was clear that we weren't going to be getting it from VCs in Australia. And um, then a funny thing happened as we started, you know, virtually as we closed that family and friends round, we started getting inbound inquiries from American VCs saying, oh, we've heard about you guys in the US, can we talk? And, you know, these inbounds were from like the founding partners or the managing partners of big brand name VCs. Wow. And so, you know, we took those calls and the level of arrogance of the VCs was completely overwhelming. And the terms that they were proposing were horrendous. And we basically sat down and said, we haven't come all of this way to go and have to deal with nasty people that are going to try and relieve us of control in shaping the destiny of this company. That is not what this is about. So, you know, we have to find another way. Now, it wasn't obvious there was another way, but, like, I'm a firm believer that if you say, like, there's no option but to find another way, like, that just forces you to figure out how to find another way. And so, like, IPOs of these kind of businesses were not very common in 2014. It was small. Like, I think our revenue in 2015 was only $11 million, right, in that financial year. So it was a very small business for the time. But um, the story was very sexy. And we had also, you know, I'd spent one and a half years. When I first got involved in Catapult, there was a major competitor in Australia called GP Sports, and Catapult was suing them, and they were suing Catapult. And it was like the dumbest thing I'd ever seen because uh-huh. neither one had the money to engage in litigation. And so I kind of stepped in, and I said, I'll be the circuit breaker. I think we should buy them. Because I always kind of I'm, – I'm very ambitious, right? And I think a bit unrealistically in, in most circumstances, and we had no money. And so what I did is effectively managed to – engage in transaction discussions for one and a half years until the point that we got to mid-2014 and we could, I could, we could go into this pre-IPO and keep it very quiet and say, we're going to do an IPO and we're raising money now in the pre-IPO in order to buy this major competitor and consolidate our position. And the price for buying that competitor was tiny on a valuation perspective relative to the packaged up valuation that we were taking to investors for the combined entity. So it was a great value arbitrage. And, you know, I, I can't remember exactly how much the pre-IPO was, but um, it was probably four or five or six million dollars. And everyone thought the business was really sexy. And they saw the move to subscription, which all of a sudden six months later had become cool. And from there, you know, we headed towards the IPO in December, which is the worst time to do an IPO. And we ran out of cash on the eve of the IPO. <laughs> like literally we had, to, we had to borrow a couple of million dollars from one of the investors at, to, in order to like, continue running the business on the eve of the IPO. And we had to get it away. And somehow miraculously we got it away you know, a minute to midnight at the end of 2014. So did you guys ever think at the time, it was gone from almost worthless or worth very little yeah. to $500 million, more than $500 million. Do you ever think, wow, what have we done? Like we've, we've created a genuine monster here. Did you ever yeah. stop and pause and, and, and reflect on that? Well, I think the problem is that when, well, there's two problems, <laughs> like, you know, that I've, I've learned to try and deal with. One is you never really have time to reflect and pause on things when everything is moving at this speed. And that's a problem from a personal point of view, and probably it's also an issue from a business point of view as well. Um, But the other thing is this. 
when you are a market darling, and let's face it, our revenue in the, the year had been $11 million and we were valued at $600 million, okay? So there's a disconnect on from planet Earth, yeah? <laughs> and so when that kind of thing is happening, and it's happening now to some businesses as well, and it will always happen, you're this market darling, everyone just constantly tells you how good you are and what a great business you have. And so then you eventually believe it because, like, they're persuasive and they're telling you something that you want to hear. And um, I think that that's called the pride before the fall. And so we just thought that really was the value of the business and probably with $11 million, we should be a billion-dollar company. Yeah. And I mean, I think that was the attitude. Like, I think that, uh, like, speaking for myself, like, definitely there was an element of self-delusion of – you know, this I had I thought the business was much bigger and much more successful than it really was because of this huge valuation that had been ascribed to it by ASX investors. And so yeah. I think what what I really realised from this is, as a small cap, say less than a billion dollar market cap in Australia, the market is not that good at understanding what you're really worth. There are some very smart investors in the market, but they've got lots on their mind and lots of opportunity, and so. You shouldn't really take your cue about how the business is going internally based on the external share price. You just need to focus on your strategy and then focus on execution and obviously manage investor relations. But, you know, there's a saying that nothing is as ever as good as it seems or as bad as it seems. And I think that that is absolutely true in business. And when our share price was huge, things the business was nowhere near as good as everyone was telling us that it was. But we wanted to hear it. And when the share price was terrible, the, uh, you know, we had, we'd lost the, uh, a CFO, we'd parted ways with a CEO, the, the share price was terrible. Actually, the business was nowhere near as bad as the market was telling us it was then. So I think that that's what it, it teaches you is to, to run your own race and never to get too in, over-exuberant and never to get too despondent. How has your business, how have you guys sort of gotten through the pandemic? Well, if this was a movie, we would now cut to a montage of our 2012 arguments around the board table about switching to a subscription business and the merits of doing that, because um, that is the answer to that question. Whatever God you believe in, thank that God that more than 70% of our revenue is subscription-based. You know, we're in an industry, elite sport is a much more resilient industry and um, like resilient to economic changes than most other industries, even in these kind of downturns. Like our customers have had a lot of pain and we've shared some of that pain with them. There's no doubt about that. But it's a much more resilient industry than most and it bounces back faster than most. And um, we have long-term subscriptions. I mean, one of the lessons of SaaS businesses in COVID-19 is that um, there are only two kinds of good subscription businesses. Either you charge less than $100 a month or you charge more, but you have long-term lock-in contracts because the worst company you can possibly be in a downturn is $1,000 a month charging month to month, right? Everyone mm-hmm. cuts those unless you're absolutely mission critical. So we're lucky, like we're mission critical. There's never been any hint that um, sports performance technology will stop being an, an integral part of sport. It continues to grow in importance and in market size. And the subscriptions, you know, are the backbone of the economic performance of the company. So, you know, that's the answer to that question. I think we might have actually been smart for once in in making some decisions that have helped us get through this. You know, mostly I'm happy to take luck wherever it rears its head, um, but I think this subscription decision was actually a very smart decision for the quality of, earn, of the revenue of the company. It sounds like you never went into business 
uh, and I think like most people I speak to, with, with the intent of making lots and lots of money, it sounds like you're a combination of, of, of opportunistic, very humble, uh, and obviously very smart. Is there an end game where you go, this is what I want to get to, I want, I want to make X money and give it away, I want to build mm. – where, where do you think it ends? What, what, what do you want to do for the next 20 years? So it ends for all of us um, in pretty abruptly. <laughs> and so I think the trick is to ensure that, like, that is not a sudden ending before you get to choose the things that you really wanted to do. And for me, um, like, when I was young, I just wanted to be rich. I did. Like, that's what I wanted to be. And then as I got older and started making a bit of money and reevaluating my life, I realized – you know, actually, I don't really like buying stuff. I think buying stuff tends to be worse for your mental health rather than better. I don't think it's a great thing. So I don't really like material goods very much. And, um, you know, I went into medicine because I was altruistic and wanted to use medicine to help people. And then I realized at some point that if you really want to help people, better off be rich and build some hospitals and help lots of people at once. And I think for me, like um, definitely money is not the primary motivator. If money was the primary motivator for any of us, we would go and be like Forex traders or something, right? I mean, just hang around money and do nothing but try to generate money. But that's not what's fun about this. And so for me, the fun is um, the creativity and the camaraderie and the building something for nothing and seeing it succeed. But I've also got lots of interests outside business. And I don't think that, um, let's say I've spent the last 30 years in and around business in some way and it's been the main thing that I have done for the last 15 like it's not going to be the main thing that I'm doing in 15 years time and I think perhaps even much earlier than that it's always going to be fun but um, there's too many other exciting and interesting things to do in life to make any one thing the main thing for too long is my view Adir is still incredibly busy a few years ago, he also became chairman of Sleeping Duck, an online mattress and furniture retailer that Adir thinks might end up being even bigger than Catapult. And since we spoke for this episode, Adir's also co-founded and chairs Real Reviews, a service that captures, ranks, and posts customer video testimonials. That was Adir Schiffman, executive chairman of Catapult Sports, and you've been listening to From Zero with me, Adam Schwab. Our producer is Lindsay Green. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, search From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab. Listener.